You're listening to the Psalms of Summer, a sermon series of Caroline Springs Anglican. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. Uh, I'm excited to speak to you for a number of reasons, not because we've got an especially uh, easy text to preach on, but because it's difficult. It was about three, four weeks ago now that John and myself were sitting down and we were talking about what we we're going to preach on. There are four different preachers throughout the month of January as we go through the book of Psalms. And I said to Jono and Sarah, my wife was there, I said, oh, someone should preach on Psalm 109. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, Sarah, my wife, said, yes, you should. <laughs> and uh, the curse of a, a godly wife is that she often convicts you about stuff and she allows God, speak, God speaks through her. So uh, you can thank Sarah for the fact that we're going to be speaking about Psalm 109 this morning. And it's really interesting because for many of us, the Psalms have been a cool spring in a desert land. I can think of many Psalms that have been a great encouragement to myself when my spirits have been low, when my affections have been lagging. I think of Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my God is near me. I think of Psalm 103, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as my God removed my transgressions from me. I think of Psalm 63, which Jono preached last week about the spring of living water that God offers to each and every one of us. Well, Psalm 109 isn't a cool spring in a desert land. In fact, what I want to do this morning is actually to bring us out a little deeper into a place where riptides and and whirlpools live. It's one of the most difficult texts uh, in the Psalms. As I was reading one of my commentaries to try and ascertain the meaning of the Psalm, one of the commentaries, the first line just said, mysterious, dot. That was it which is obviously very helpful. And the reason why they're so difficult is because according to our modern Western sensibilities, they are offensive. They are uncomfortable. Um, they belong to, Psalm 109 belongs to a series of psalms littered throughout the psalms, which are imprecatory psalms, songs of divine curses. And they're difficult for a number of reasons. One, it, it challenges our view of who God is. It challenges us as we hide from difficult texts. It challenges us what we pray about. And so the reason why I wanted to bring this up this morning, because I actually think it reveals important truth about who God is. I think it it reveals important truth about who we are and why we hide from these things. And I also want to get to a point where we can uh, ask the question whether it's good or not to pray these type of psalms. Now, I trust that each and every one of you will have a plethora of questions and throughout the uh, sermon, there'll be a number on the screen. Please text your questions through. We want to answer them. They will go up on our Facebook feed tomorrow afternoon. John and myself will sit down and try and answer every single one of them um, because we think that's important. We believe that Jesus is the way, the life and the truth so that if we search for the truth, we find him. So there's nothing to be feared by asking good questions. So before I pray and before we read Psalm 109, I just wanted to quote uh, Charles Spurgeon, who's a great, uh, I guess, mentor of mine, even though he lived 200 years earlier. He's someone whose writing I've reveled in, but he really sets the spirit of why we're looking at Psalm 109. So he says this, Is it not good for us sometimes to be made to feel that we are not yet able to understand all the word and mind of God? A thorough bewilderment, so long as it does not stagger our faith, may be useful to us by confounding our pride, 
arousing our faculties and leading us to cry, what I, know, what I now know, teach thou me. So I'm going to pray. So you can bow your heads or assume whatever prayer position feels most comfortable to you. And then I'm going to read Psalm 109. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, every word is breathed by you, that it is useful for rebuke, for correction and teaching. And Father, we pray that as we approach Psalm 109 this morning, that it is useful for teaching. Father, we pray that as you challenge us, that as our, our souls feel conviction of the words, that we are led to repentance and to a greater trust in you. Father, shake us this morning. Shake our immature notions of who you are. Shake, shake us from our preconceived ideas of how you act. For we know that in Isaiah 55 it says, your ways are above our ways and your thoughts are above our thoughts. Father, let, us, let that be us this morning. We pray that you disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Father, fill us with your spirit to understand this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. One more note before we start reading Psalms is that usually our sermons are expository, which is a big word that just means we go through line by line by line. Um, and we're not really going to be doing that this morning. We're going to be doing something called exploratory. So rather than taking line by line and going step by step until we come to a final location and see where God's leading us, we're actually going to be trying to survey the land, trying to build block upon block upon block so that we can see what God is trying to do and by placing the imprecatory Psalms. So you can read Psalm 109. There's Bibles all around. If you don't own one, take that. Finders keepers is our motto when it comes to Bibles, uh, and we're going to be looking at it on the screen as well. So let us read Psalm 109, for the director of music, written of David, a psalm. O God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouths against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me and they attack me without cause. In return for my friendship they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. Appoint an evil man to oppose him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May may they be driven from their ruined home. May a creditor seize all that he has. And may strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord, that he may cut off the very memory of them from the earth. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. For he loved to pronounce a curse, may it come upon him. He found no pleasure in blessing, may it be far from him. He wore, he wore cursing, cursing as his garment. 
It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. May it be a cloak wrapped around him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accuser, to those who speak evil of me. But you, O sovereign Lord, deal well with me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I fade away like an evening shadow. I'm shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting and my body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me in accordance with your love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, O Lord, have done it. And they may curse, but you will bless. When they attack, they will be put to shame, but your servant will rejoice. My accusers will be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng I will praise him. For though he stands at the right hand of the needy one, to save his life from those who condemn him. Praise be to God. (laughs) It's a heavy text. We don't normally read these kind of things in the Psalms, let alone the Scriptures. Before we proceed, I just wanted to throw it open. Does anyone have any burning questions that just come up immediately when they read Psalm 109? Just, just yell some of them out. What, what are some of the questions that you guys have? Is it wrong for it, you want, to want evil to come on your enemies? Does God believe in karma? What else? I've got more than a few when I was reading this this week. How can a God who asks us to pray for our enemies, to forgive our persecutors, then be party to this? Is the Old Testament and the New Testament so far apart? Seems like different gods. Well, we're going to try and answer a number of these. Um, and hopefully what I, what I want to do is to place the psalm in its context, to place imprecatory language in its context so that we can actually give God praise for it. And it might be a difficult thing from the place that we are right now, but I think it's possible and not only, not only possible but requires it. So let's place it in its context. There are a number of things that we should understand about the imprecatory psalms before we begin to understand what this specific psalm is saying. So the very first one is that imprecatory psalms are songs of divine curses laid out throughout Scripture. So Psalm 109 isn't an isolated experience. is isn't just one dodgy psalm amidst a, a, a plethora of really nice, uplifting psalms. They're actually very common. You have Psalm 69, which Jesus quotes extensively in the New Testament. You have Psalm 58, which Paul quotes as well. You have Psalm 5, Psalm 32. They're laid throughout the, entire, the, the Old Testament. And this type of language isn't foreign to the Psalms. It's laid throughout the rest of Scripture as well. So it's not like we can say, this is a dodgy Psalm, let's ignore it and get on with the rest of them. So the second thing that helps us place it in its context is that in many of the imprecatory psalms, love and prayer for the enemy has been pursued to the nth degree. In this psalm, for instance, David has prayed for his accusers. He has loved them, he has done good to them, and they have repaid him with evil. It says in Psalm 
uh, Psalm 109, 4 and 5, In return for my friendship they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. This hasn't come of a place of uh, immediate retribution when David has been filled with anger and responded by lashing out. Instead, it's come from a place of prayer, of, of deep dependence upon God, and trying to treat his enemies well. In almost all of the Psalms, David uses this type of language to precede the judgment that happens. The next thing that helps us put it in its context is this is not exclusively an Old Testament phenomenon. Jesus, Peter, Paul all quote imprecatory language, all quote imprecatory Psalms without trying to excuse or explain them. Ah, oh, sorry, I've, I've jumped one. <laughs> So imprecatory psalms the result of judgment occurring when wickedness is so persistent and high-handed and so offensive to God that the time for redemption is past. So there will come a time when redemption is past for each and every one of us. And in this case, prayer has been pursued, love has been pursued, the enemies have been pursued with great love, great abandonment. And the time for redemption is past. Their sins are so agrarious, so, so grand that redemption is past. So number four, which is what I was saying before. Imprecatory Psalms are quoted by New Testament authors all the time without excuse or explanation. They just quote them and trust us to understand that what they're saying. So we come to something like uh, John 15. So this is Jesus quoting a psalm. If I had not done amongst them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. So they hated me without reason comes from Psalm 69, one of the most hate-filled imprecatory psalms. In John uh, chapter 2, Jesus again speaks from Psalm 69, saying, To those who sold doves, he's casting out people from the temple, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. It's a line from Psalm 69. And then in Acts, which we've just gone through the entire book of Acts, Peter the rock that the church was built upon, uses Psalm 109 to judge Judas. He takes its context and says this was actually written about Judas. So he says, They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up amongst the believers, a group numbering about 120 now, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. So the scripture that we're reading today, the Holy Spirit spoke through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a caldoma, that is, field of blood. For said, for, said Peter, is written in the book of Psalms, specifically in Psalm 109. May his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it. 
May another take his place of leadership. This led many scholars to suggest that New Testament authors aren't exactly afraid of quoting imprecatory psalms. Actually, one of them, uh, whose name is Henry Meniger, Harry Meniger, he said, The New Testament appears not in the least embarrassed with the Old Testament imprecations. On the contrary, it quotes freely from them as authoritative statements with which to support an argument. The New Testament not only quotes passages which, though themselves are not imprecations, are found in a psalm with one, but also, and this is more remarkable, it quotes with approval the imprecations themselves. Jesus, Peter, and Paul are not only quoting the outskirts of imprecatory psalms, they're quoting the very core of them without explanation or excuse. So we move on to the point five of helpful ways to put it in context. The imprecatory psalms come not from a personal vindictiveness, but a prophetic execution of justice that is exclusively mediated by God. This is not something that's just happened to me and I'm trying to lash out against my foe. This is something that's happened not only against God's people but God himself. And so the psalmists are crying out to God for prophetic execution of God's justice. God is the just judge. Justice is his to give. So it places that in its context. Psalms are written throughout the Old Testament. Love and prayer has been pursued. It's what comes about when sin is so grand that redemption is past. The New Testament authors quoted extensively without explanation, not personal vindictiveness, but execution of justice, mediated by God alone. Okay, let's, let's take a look at the actual psalm that we've got before us. Psalm 109. So we're going to break into sections. So we're going to read chapter uh, verse 1 to 5, verse 6 to 16, 17 to 20, and 21 to the end. This is what it says in the beginning. Psalm 109, for the director of music of David's psalm. So just in case you guys hadn't worked out how the temple worked back then, this is a psalm that would have been sung not just by David, but the entire temple. So imagine us instead of singing uh, joyful, oh, sorry, what was the song called? Salvation, Salvation, oh, the joyful sound. We would be singing Psalm 109. (laughs) It's a strange thought. So uh, verse 1, O God whom I praise, do not remain silent. So David throws himself upon God. He relays a deep confidence in God and places himself before God as the mediator of what's about to come. And in verse 2 and 3, he shows what the issue is. For wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouth against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround me. They attack me without cause. So David's writing to a context where it's potentially a group of people, maybe one or two or three. There's a number of people who are mentioned uh, who it could be relating to. Um, It could be Doeg the Edomite who killed a number of priests under Saul's command. It could be referring to Ahithophel who was one of David's most wisest and trusted 
uh, co- not commanders, but uh, uh, instructors um, who defected to his son Absalom in um, a time of great trial for David. Could be either of those, but we know that wicked and deceitful men have opened their mouth against him. They have spoken against David with lying tongues. With words of hatred they surround him and they attack him without cause. There is no cause, but David has been attacked. Evil is being repaid for good. In verse 4 and 5, we find out what David's first response has been. In return for my friendship, they accuse me, but I am a man of prayer. So David has been accused, but he prays. They repay me evil for good and hatred for my friendship. David has extended friendship. He has done good to them, and in response, he's been repaid with evil and lies and hatred. So we've got this context. David's thrown himself upon God. Men have attacked him without cause. David has prayed for them, done good to them, and in response, they have done him evil. So then we come to the imprecations. I'm just going to go through them line by line and explain what they mean. Oh, sorry. There's a lot of notes here today. I wanted to be very precise with my language. This actually shows David, who David is. So it's helpful to remember that David is not a vindictive man, that throughout all of the Psalms, that he's actually been a man of prayer, a man of forgiveness, a man who's thrown himself upon God, who's asked God to inquire of his hearts and to cleanse him. So we read in Psalm 35 that David says, Who is like you, Lord? You rescue the poor from those too strong for them, the poor and the needy from those who rob them. Ruthless witnesses come forward, and they question me on things I know nothing about. They repay me evil for good and leave me like one bereaved. This is really important. Next line. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. So this is another instance where David has been attacked without cause and in response to that, David, has seen that his enemies are ill, has put on sackcloth, a sign of grieving, and fasted, abstained from food, committed himself to prayer and mourning for his enemies. It says next in Psalm 69, another psalm that shows us a little bit about David's character, it said, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. So David has been attacked, but he returns by restoring what he did not steal. In Psalm 139, David asked God to cleanse his heart, saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is not a vindictive man. These aren't the the psalms, the writings, the lyrics of someone who has been aggrieved and lashes out. David has shown himself again and again to be a gentle man, a man described as after God's own heart, who prays for his enemies. And yet we find him writing this. 
So we're going to go through Psalm 6 to 16. And I want you to do something as we go through the imprecatory language. I want you to try and manage the tension between a New Testament gospel ethic that asks us to pray for our enemies, to forgive our persecutors, and the imprecatory language that we find. Christianity is often about managing the tensions, not resolving them. So I just want you to try and manage them. So let's go through line by line. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. In the original Greek, the accuser is actually Satan. So he says, let Satan stand at his right hand. And to be honest, that makes sense to me. Evil should be opposed. It should be judged. When he is tried, let him be found guilty. May his prayers condemn him. When he comes before a judge, let him be found guilty. He is an evil man who has done evil things. When he comes before the judge, let him not get off lightly. Let him be judged according to what he has done. Though he calls out to you in prayer, may justice reign. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. We often pray this, that bad leaders be replaced. Sin also has a way of shortening someone's life. So may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership. And this is where it gets tricky. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. David's asking for his death. Next slide. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all that he has. And may strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. Just, just, just sit back on that psalm. This is heavy. This is difficult for us to reconcile with a New Testament God who we know is to be loving. I can get on board with justice. I can get on board with the just judge finding evil men guilty. But it's difficult to reconcile children being made beggars for their father's issues. And we know that children often take after their fathers and in the Old Testament that generational sin occurs so the sins of the fathers are laid down through the sons. But it seems so heavy. It seems difficult for us to understand. God, help us understand. Next slide. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may blot out their name from the earth. This is justice at its worst, at its most heavy, at its most grand in some ways. Not only does David ask for the judgment of the evil that opposes him, but he asks them to be removed from the earth, his entire legacy to be removed from him. It's heavy. Let's move on. And again, David again describes the men who oppose him. 
For he never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water and into his bones like oil. May it be like a cloak wrapped around him, like a belt tied forever around him. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. What we're asking is David's asking for him to be repaid in like. He's not a generous man. He does not offer mercy. The swindler can hardly be aggrieved when someone swindles him. The liar can scarcely be upset when someone lies to his faith. The thief cannot cry loudly the great deed that has been done against me when someone steals from him. David is saying these men have done horrible things against a great many people and against the name of God. Let it be in like. Still difficult. And we read on to Psalm 21 to 31. We'll read it out, but we want to move forward from it. But you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. And I fade away like an evening shadow. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees give way from fasting, and my body is thin and gaunt. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to your unfailing love. Let them know that it is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Whilst they curse, may you bless. May those who attack me be put to shame, but may your servant rejoice. May my accusers be clothed with disgrace and wrapped in shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise him, for he stands at the right hand of the needy to save their lives from those who would condemn them. I want you to notice two things about this section. One is that David, after throwing these psalms of curses, throws himself upon a sovereign God who is utterly sovereign. We talk about the sovereignty of God a lot at this church. We believe in the sovereignty of God, especially when it relates to salvation, so that God will will who he chooses to be saved. But to be honest with you, I understand if you disagree with us. That's okay. But if there is one good reason to believe in the sovereignty of God, it's justice. I believe in the sovereignty of God because there will never be an evil act that will not be punished. There will never be something done that will go unseen. Our God is the God who is above all things, who hands stretches out over all of time, and no evil will go unpunished. There's a great reason to believe in the sovereignty of God. That God is not a weak being who sees evil things and lets them lie. Every single act of evil will meet God. And justice will flow. The other thing I want you to notice about this psalm is that after saying all these things, David throws himself upon God in prayer. I've said it a number of times, David's not saying these curses from himself. He's not saying, I curse you. He's throwing himself upon God to mete out justice. 
So he's calling upon a sovereign God in prayer. He's saying, God, this is my will. This is what I want, but you do as you will. I'm thin and gaunt and bowed down. Do as you will, for I will praise you. Psalm 109 is a difficult text. Laid throughout all the scripture of the imprecatory psalms, but this language is hard for us to reconcile with the gospel. I feel it. I feel it on my chest. And I see it in your faces. It's hard for us to reconcile the gospel ethic with this. But I wanted to finish, not, not even finish, we've got a while to go. I hate when pastors say, almost finished, and then go for 15 minutes. I wanted to wrap it all up by asking three questions. One, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about who God is? Second, what does this tell us about ourselves? When we hide from the difficult passages, what does it tell us about us? Third, should we pray in precatory psalms? Which I think is a good question. So how do we reconcile all this? What does it tell us about God? I think that it tells us about God that anger at sin and a desire that all of evil will meet justice is not opposed to the spirit of the gospel. In fact, I think it tells us that anger against sin and a desire to see all of evil met with justice underlines the entirety of the good news of Jesus. Justice is a note that's played throughout the Gospels. Because it was justice that nailed the nails through Jesus' hands and feet. It was justice that put the cross on Christ's back. It was justice that God threw out his divine wrath upon Christ. It was justice because it should have been me. It was justice because it should have been my hands and feet that the nails were pierced through. It should have been my back that was burdened and broken by the cross. It should have been me that God's divine wrath and judgment should have been cast off onto. Justice lies throughout the gospel. Can't divorce it. Can't say God is a God of mercy without saying he's also a God of justice, a God of judgment. He is the just judge and he is the merciful saviour. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God in the end will always get his glory. Either like Judas who he judged or like Peter who he is merciful to, God in the end will get his glory. Westminster Confession begins with the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of God is to gather glory for himself. And in the end, he will always get his glory, whether through being the judge or the saviour. They're not opposed to each other. Justice is laid throughout the gospel. Martin Luther King, the great uh, reformer in America, who spoke such full words about justice, he used language taken from imprecatory language in Amos. So Amos is a prophet in the Old Testament. It's a minor prophet. And Amos is an angry dude. He's railing against the excesses that he sees in 8th century Israel. 
And he rails against them for chapter against chapter against chapter until he finally says in Amos 5, the famous words that Martin Luther King himself spoke, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, Amos is speaking on behalf of God, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard. Away with this noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. God is not opposed to justice, friends. It is his character. And there will come a time when justice and righteousness will flow like a stream. The issue that we have is that we're the ones it's often directed against. What does it say about ourselves when we hide from the difficult texts? When we find stuff like this difficult? Well, I think it's universally true that we hide from difficult texts. You only have to go on Facebook to see the proliferation of the fake Facebook news at the moment to see that we like news that confirms what we already believe. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. We just like things that we already believe to be true to be true. So you see people quote silly things that they know aren't true. They must know aren't true. But they immediately see it and go, yes, that is true because I already believe it. You saw it with the election in the United States. It's probably most uh, averse during politics season. It's horrendous. But it's a confirmation bias we all have. It just means that we already believe what we already believe. I believe that God is a sovereign ruler, so I will judge things through that lens. And we all do it. So when we come to a passage like Psalm 109, we try and push it through a lens that we have of a God who is much smaller than he actually is. We say, my God wouldn't do this. God is loving. A loving God wouldn't do this. He wouldn't be like this. He wouldn't judge people like this. No, this can't be right. This must be a dodgy psalm. This must be a dodgy bit of scripture. I'm just going to push it to the back. God does not allow you to push his scripture to the back. How far must we have gone from God if we cannot recognize him in his word? It was Francis Chan who wrote in a book called Erasing Hell. See, in modern times, hell is another uh, doctrine, another idea that Christians hold tightly to that is slowly being whittled away. So Francis Chan, along with Preston Sprinkle, they uh, did a study of hell looking through all the biblical evidence for it, and found that overwhelmingly that the scriptures talked about hell as a real place. And this is what Francis Chan said to people who'd say, I could never love a God who would. This is his words from Erasing Hell. I often hear people say, I could never love a God who would. And Francis Chan says, who would what? Who would disagree with you and do things that you would never do? Who would allow bad things to happen to people? Who would be more concerned with his glory than your feelings? This makes about as much sense as the clay looking up to the potter and saying, I think you messed up here. Let me show you a better way to mold me. Picture the absurdity. He's speaking about Romans 9. Yet we do it all the time. It has taken me 43 years to finally confess that I have been embarrassed by some of God's actions. 
in my arrogance, I believed that I could make him more attractive or palatable if I covered up some of his actions. So I neglected speaking on certain passages, or I would rush through certain statements God made in order to get the ones I was comfortable with, the ones that I knew others would like, the ones that we put on our coffee mugs. This line killed me. I am just now seeing the ugliness of my actions. Like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I have tried to hide God. Who do I think I am? The truth is God is perfect and right in all that he does, and I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. Now, sometimes from our human perspective, it's tough to see exactly how God is perfect and just and good. And that's why God says in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My thoughts are not your thoughts. It means we think differently to God. We are not capable Our thinking is inferior to his. Let's not think that spending a bit of time meditating on the mysteries of the universe places us on a level that allows us to call God into question. Our God is not a person who is slightly more intelligent than ourselves. His thoughts are infinitely higher than ours. Praise be to God. Psalm 109 confronts us with the horrible truth that we knew all along that God thinks differently than we do. It confronts us with the truth that His ways are not my ways, that His thoughts are not my thoughts. Tim Keller wrote a book called Reasonable Faith. It's a stunner, and this is what he had to say. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Let that sit for a moment. Yes, Psalm 109 is difficult. Yes, the imprecatory Psalms are hard for us to understand. Yes, they're difficult language for us to reconcile. But if you believe in a God who has never challenged you or disagreed with you, you probably believe in a God you've made up. So my God isn't like that? Well, maybe he is. Scriptures say that God is love. So if our definition of love isn't God, then we need to change our definition. It's not God who needs to change. If our definition of justice is different from the one that God meets out, definition of justice needs to change, not us. I mean, not God. So the final question, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about ourselves? Should we pray in precatory psalms? And my answer is yes. Yes, we should. With two conditions. I was in Adelaide earlier this week and uh, it was great. It was very hot, which is beautiful. I like the heat. Uh, there's many hills. So me and my friend headed out there. We watched the tour down under. We're both mad cyclists. And on the first day that we were there, um, we were riding and we were a bit confused as, we were, as to where we were going. So we were riding two abreast, which means that uh, one of us is riding here and one of us is riding alongside. And you're sort of on the middle, you're sort of in the road, but not on the road. You're allowed to do it um, by law. 
and uh, a ute came past and hit, or missed my friend by about this much, honking at him, honking at him. And uh, my friend uh, did the wrong thing. He uh, gave him the bird, you know, this signal, right? And uh, the ute has thrown on his handbrake. So he knew something's about to go down and he's run out of the car. And he comes up to my friend and punches him in the face. And so we're like, wow, Adelaide's very welcoming and uh, friendly. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, the problem was that there was both wrong done. Should the guy have punched my friend in the face? No, obviously not. Should he have tried to hit my friend? No. Should we have been riding two abreast on a busy road whilst we're trying to work out where we're going? No. Should my friend have given him the bird? No. We were not innocent. What we find in the imprecatory Psalms, especially in the beginning, is that David is innocent. So before we pray imprecatory language, we should ask ourselves the question and throw ourselves before God, just like he does in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Lead me in your everlasting ways. Am I innocent? That must be the prerequisite. The second one is this. Are you meeting out God's punishment or yours? Are you searching for God's justice or yours? It's different. If we try and meet out our own justice, then we've actually placed ourselves in the position of God. David places himself under it. He says, God, I am lowly. I have fasted. I'm praying. I've been repaid evil for good. Deal with them with your justice, Father, but according to your sovereign ways. So when it comes to someone like ISIS, should we pray the imprecatory Psalms? Yes. We should pray for their their repentance. We should pray for their salvation. And we should also pray that justice rolls down like a river and that righteousness flows through. If Hitler was before us, should we pray in imprecatory language? Utterly yes. Now, there may never be an occasion for us in safe, calm Caroline Springs to pray in precatory language against someone. Our foes aren't that great, and often we are not innocent. But can we pray in precatory language? Yes. But you must ask yourself, am I innocent? And am I trying to meet out God's punishment? Am I asking for God to intervene with his justice? Or am I just wanting to give out mine? It's not trying to stand in a position of authority. It's placing yourself lowly before the God who is sovereign above all things and saying, God, I know at the end of days that your justice will be done. But I need it now. I need it right now. Yeah, friends, I I acknowledge that this is a difficult passage. And I've probably made a lot of you uncomfortable. And I've probably offended many of you, perhaps. But I pray that through this psalm, that you will see that God is just and that he is good. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund asked Mr. Beaver, was Aslan a safe lion? And Mr. Beaver replied, no, he is not. He is not a tame lion, but he is good. When we look to the gospel, when we look to Jesus Christ being laid out, we see the utter perfection of God's justice and his mercy. 
But his justice means that I no longer am condemned and his mercy means that his former enemies have become his sons. God has not just forgiven me, justice has been accomplished, but mercy has reigned. Friends, I'm going to pray now, I'm going to invite the band up. But I implore you, if you've got questions, send them in. If you've got uh, questions, you can talk to me afterwards. But I pray, try and manage the tension, forgiving your enemies, praying for them, but also knowing that God is an utterly just judge and evil will never have the final word. I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we, as we open it, even though it challenges us, even though as it convicts us, that it's useful for correction, for reproof, for teaching. And I pray this morning that it, it corrects immature, inferior images we have of you in our head. And I pray, Father, that that spirit inside of us that says, my God isn't like that, will throw itself upon you and ask, are you like this, God? Show me who you are. Give us a greater appreciation for the biblical great I am, who is judge of all history and a merciful saviour, who hates sin so much that his son must die, but loves the world so much that he sent him anyway. Father, we pray that we will be filled with the same sense of injustice when we see injustice that we cannot wait until you hand out the punishment for evil. Make us as lowly like David, Father. Humble us, place us as thin and gaunt and broken. Make us one with the brokenhearted. Father, search our ways and mould us into a better image of Christ. Father, we pray all these things. In the name of Christ, amen.